Um, we've learned to do this over the years. When we share testimonies, what it does is it raises faith in the room for us to then go again and pray again. So just before I start, I'd love to pray for, and the irony is not lost on me, I'd love to pray for physical healing. So is there anyone here who needs prayer for physical healing other than me? And I will get prayer. It could be anything. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else need prayer for physical healing? Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, come out, yeah. Anyone else? No. Um, do you mind, guys, just standing up and those around you, just on the basis of those testimonies we've just had, we're going to pray for healing, if you can stand. Pray for healing again. And if just some of whoever's sitting around just could go up to them. Three things, just ask them what it is that they need healing for. It doesn't need to be long, really short. And then pray in the name of Jesus for that to be healed and then try it out and then have another go. Is that all right? Let's just do that for a couple of seconds. Joel, you can pray for me. I think it's obvious what I need healing for. Come on. <laughs> and the rest of us, just while we're waiting, you might not be used to this, don't worry about it. But just intercede, pray on behalf. Just pray to God for physical healing here. Brilliant. One last chance. If you're praying, just say it out loud. Be healed in Jesus' name. Doesn't need to be any longer than that. Condition, be healed in Jesus' name. So Lord, we thank you for those testimonies of healing that we've heard from the weekend. Thank you that you heal. And on the basis of those testimonies, we pray again, would you heal? So each one of these people that stood up, Lord, we ask as I speak now, as your spirit meets with them, that you would heal them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for going along with that. So the life course, for those that don't know, is an opportunity for anyone irrespective of belief to ask some of the bigger questions of life. For example, is there an ultimate meaning to life? If there is an ultimate meaning to life, can I experience that meaning for myself? And where is it? And how do I access it? And so over the weeks, we consider all of the meanings that we attribute to our lives. Some people find it in their job. Some people find it in relationships. Some people um, find it in a myriad of different ways. And then week two, we look at whether there's an overarching meaning to life. So is there an ultimate purpose to our lives 
on earth. And then by week three, we start to present some of the Christian claims. And the Christian claim is that the ultimate meaning of life is lived in and through relationship with Jesus. And so we look at the basis of that claim. And the basis of that claim is that Jesus revealed himself 2,000 years ago as God himself. He said, when you see me, you've seen God. And his character attests to that. So often we say, if God were to reveal himself in humanity, if God were to come down to earth and become one of us, who do you think he would look like, if not a little bit like the person of Jesus? Someone who is undeniably kind, unquestionably authoritative, unbelievably powerful, above it all, above all of these things that seem to dog us in our lives and keep us and track us back and restrict us in our freedom. Who do we think God might look like if not the person of Jesus? But then, of course, we say, well, what's the proof of that? It's all very well Jesus claiming to be God. How do we know once and for all that he, he is who, who he says he is. And then we look at the evidence for the resurrection. And we consider the fact that the disciples didn't just believe that Jesus rose from the dead, because if they just believed Jesus rose from the dead, then there wouldn't really be much power behind that. They weren't just believers of the resurrection of Jesus. They were what the Bible says is witnesses. They were witnesses. They actually saw Jesus die on the cross and then three days later raise from the dead. And this is one of the central truth claims of the Christian faith is that we can pin intellectually, historically on the evidence of the resurrection that Jesus' claim that he is God on the evidence of the resurrection. And so how else to explain the empty tomb, the fact that the tomb was empty? If uh, people wanted to discredit the claim of the disciples that Jesus had come back from the dead, they would have just flung the body down in the marketplace. The Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, neither of those guys wanted this fledgling faith that had been killed with Jesus on the cross to survive. And so they would have just flung the body down and said, there's your risen Jesus. So how do we, uh, how do we account for the empty uh, grave, but also how do we account for some of the eyewitness accounts of the disciples? So it wasn't just the 12, it was another 200 people on top of that, many, many more people on top of that. They couldn't have been hallucinating it because we don't all hallucinate the same thing at the same time. And so therefore there's a serious weight of evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But really the one that gets me the most is the fact that these disciples and followers of Jesus went from hiding away, completely terrified of the person whom they've just seen die on the cross, who claimed to be God, whom they'd followed for three years of his ministry. They were hidden away. They denied that they even knew him. And then they say they witnessed Jesus come back from the dead and started boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in front of everyone. In fact, they believed it so powerfully because they were witnesses, not just belief. They saw it happen that they were willing to die. And in fact, many of them, if not all of them, did die as a result of the persecution that followed. And so therefore the resurrection we think has a strong historical evidence basis for our faith. And if you want to intellectually start to understand whether Christianity is true or not, I would encourage you to look at the historical evidence of the resurrection. Of course, it's historical, right? So we're trying to say beyond reasonable doubt, do we think that this event happened? 
We're not claiming that all dead people rise from the dead. We're saying this particular person at this particular time rose from the dead. And so therefore, if you look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and you examine it bit by bit from historians, friend and foe alike, Christian and non-Christian alike, it's very hard to come to any other conclusion than the fact that he rose from the dead. And then, of course, we look at some of the power of Jesus at work in our own lives, in the lives of the early church, the explosion of the early church. And then at the end, just before the weekend away, we look at the cross and we look at what all of this means. If Jesus was and is the Son of God, if he did come back from the dead three days later, if the historical evidence is strong enough for us to be able to say beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus defeated death and came back to life, what does that all mean? And of course, on the cross, what the Christian faith claims is that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the stuff that separates us from a relationship with God, which is, by the way, the purpose for which we were made, and he destroys the power of it once and for all. And so therefore, when God looks upon us, despite all of our mess, despite all of our pain, despite uh, this tendency that we have to screw things up in our lives, he looks upon us and he sees perfection because Jesus was perfect and didn't deserve to die and took upon himself all of our selfish attempts to live our lives in and through ourselves. And he opens the way for this perfect relationship with God as our father. And then we have the weekend away. And the purpose of the weekend away is say, well, if all of that's true, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he genuinely rose from the grave and we have these eyewitness accounts of it happening and the evidence is strong, if Jesus' own understanding of what his death on the cross actually meant is true, then I must be able to experience it now. And so we spend a weekend of simply opening ourselves to an experience of the presence of God who is alive and wants to meet with us today. And the experiences at weekends away vary wildly. Some people find that they open themselves really quickly. They find that kind of thing quite easy and quite helpful. And so therefore they experience the love of God for the first time very quickly. Sometimes people find themselves to be slightly less open. And so therefore it's a process and it takes time. And there's nothing wrong with either of those approaches. It's like any relationship in life. Some of us jump in wholeheartedly and get stuck, right? And some of us are just a bit more reserved and it takes more time. And that's absolutely okay because God has created us how he has created us and he wants to relate with us in a way that we could only understand and relate to and enjoy and so therefore over the weekend it's this process of opening ourselves and whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian whether you believe some of those Christian claims or you don't believe some of those Christian claims the same is true that God wants to encounter you by his Holy Spirit and so we look at this idea of God being present in his Holy Spirit his presence and he can fill us and all we need to do is ask. And there's this article I read that claims that 99% of us in this room don't drink enough water. So the idea is we're supposed to drink two liters of water a day, right, which is eight glasses of water. Only 60% of us drink one glass of water. 99% of us don't drink enough of the water we're supposed to be drinking. Now, I've read these sorts of articles before, and I've heard this kind of stuff before. You read it when you go to the doctor, and it's pinned up on the wall, and there's the color of your urine, and they're saying, if you're here, drink more water to get here, and all of that, right? But I've often just thought, well, I can't really need hydrating. I obviously don't need as much water as other people 
people because I don't drink any water. In fact, all I really drink is coffee, which obviously has water in it, but dehydrates as well. And the odd beer, which definitely dehydrates. And then Coca-Cola, which dehydrates even more. The idea is I can't possibly need all of this water. And then in this article, I read it and it was saying that of the 99% of us who aren't getting enough water, the thing about our bodies is if we don't give our bodies the water that our bodies need, then our internal organs start to shut down and our bodies stop telling us that we're thirsty. So we're all walking around thinking we're not thirsty when actually all that's happened is our organs have shut down and we're slowly dying inside. So hold on to that thought and enjoy it for the rest of the week. The point isn't water, all right? I don't really care about water. Here's what I want to say tonight. Do you think that the same might be true of us spiritually? Here's the Christian claim. We have physical needs that need to be met. Water, we need to drink food, we need to consume sleep, safety, warmth. We need these things in order to be physically fully alive. We also have emotional needs that need to be met, right? There's so many studies on this now. Apparently, not having a, a steady, significant relationship, intimate relationship in our life can be as bad for us as 15 cigarettes a day. That's the effect of not having a stable, consistent, intimate relationship. Emotionally, we need intimate relationships in order to be able to thrive. So we know everybody out there, nobody's questioning that now. We need these intimate relationships to emotionally thrive in life. But here's the Christian claim. Same is true of physical, is of emotional needs and spiritual that in order to be able to survive, not just survive, but thrive and enjoy fullness of life, we have spiritual needs in our lives that need to be met. And what I want to say tonight is so often, whether you're Christian or not, whether you believe this stuff or not, we are not consuming enough of what we need to be able to satisfy that spiritual thirst. And I think so often our souls and our spirits have stopped asking for it. We shut ourselves down. And so the weekend and every week, if I'm honest, and whenever we meet with God, it's an opportunity to open ourselves again, to be open to the Holy Spirit. So how aware are you right now of your thirst? If you're a Christian, how aware are you that you have this spiritual thirst inside that can only be satisfied by the presence of God? I think too often in church, we settle for, at worst, a bunch of rules that if we think we fulfill these rules or if we do this certain stuff, then we're going to be satisfied spiritually. What that really does, it leaves us dehydrated. It leaves us completely out on a limb. It means that we feel completely drained the whole time. That's the worst kind of church. If you ever come across that kind of church, never go to it because it's never going to satisfy you spiritually. But really, the other option is often at church, we just find it's busy, 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 and it's chat the whole time, and it's noisy, and there's so much noise, we never leave space to encounter the Holy Spirit. And the effect of that is exactly the same. We start to shut down spiritually. Our souls aren't getting the nourishment. Isn't, we're not being hydrated by the Holy Spirit in the way we need because we're not leaving enough space. So if you're a Christian, that's the thought tonight. Let's think about how we open ourselves, how we leave space for the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, then many of you who have done the life course, I know because I've met most of you and we've been doing it for the last six weeks, the whole reason you're on the course normally is because you know there must be something more to life than you're currently experiencing. Nietzsche calls it seasickness, and Schopenhauer, both uh, philosophers, calls it boredom. But so often we talk about this hole inside that just 
simply isn't being filled by the normal stuff of life that we're trying to fill it with, whether that be a career or money or relationships, whatever it is, physically, emotionally, in and of the world that we're trying to fill it with, it seems like the hole just simply can't be filled and it results in this seasickness or this boredom or this sense of emptiness. And the Christian claim is that can only be filled by an experience or an encounter of the love of God. And so we do courses like this with the life course and we start to think about the bigger questions of life and we're questioning whether there might be something in this that might help us to be able to satisfy that thirst. Well, the Bible talks a lot about thirst. It talks a lot about the satisfaction of thirst, not physically with water, but spiritually with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to read a really short verse in Revelation. This is the end of the Bible. It's a book, a letter at the end of the Bible that talks about how God satisfies our thirst. And what I want to answer is two questions. What are we thirsty for and how do we satisfy that thirst? What are you thirsty for and how are you going to satisfy it? And so the verse is this. This is Revelation 21. Verse 6, it will come up behind me. It says this. He said to me, he said to me. Have you got it, Tom? Good man. It's coming up. Okay, I'll read it anyway, and then it will come up. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Talking about thirst, not physical thirst, talking about spiritual thirst and the promises that God will give water that's going to satisfy. So let's just break that verse down a little bit first. He says, he said to me, who's the he? Well, the context of this letter, it's written by a guy called John. And if you read Revelation, it is wacky, absolutely wacky. But there's moments of clarity like this passage here where we kind of get a sense of what's going on here. But the context in which it was written, it was John was writing to a persecuted church, writing to a church that was seriously suffering. And all they needed was a bit of hope. They were being killed for their faith. They were being persecuted for their faith. And John is writing from prison, being persecuted himself, saying, do not worry. There is hope. And it's coming in the form of the person of Jesus. So he is Jesus there, who is God. So he said to me, Jesus said to me, it is done. What is done? Well, this is the end of the Bible, right? And the whole point of the Bible is it's one huge overarching story. So it's not lots of, it is lots of individual books, but we believe that God speaks through the entire story. And the point is that right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we're introduced to the fact that heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places. So where God is and where we are, humanity, were never meant to be separated. It was supposed to be one and the same place. It's in a place called the Garden of Eden. And as we read it, we see this beautiful expression of what it looks like for humanity, us, to live in the presence of God, to be experiencing satisfaction to any spiritual thirst that we might have in and of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of God. But then there's this break in Genesis 3 where we realize that those two places are torn apart. And they're torn apart because of the imperfection 
imperfection of humanity. And something called sin enters the world. And all sin is, it's a little three-letter word with I in the middle. It's essentially self-related lies that we believe because of lies that have been sold to us. And we believe that if we can satisfy ourselves, then we are going to experience fullness of life. Whereas God says, you already had it in and of my presence. You didn't need to grasp it yourself. But because of the humanity's sin, it separates God from humanity. And there's this separation that happens that just spirals. And as you read the Old Testament, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. This separation between the presence of God and the people whom God has made to exist in the presence of God is separated. They're torn apart. And then in the middle of the Bible, Jesus bursts onto the scene. And the whole point of the person of Jesus is that on the cross, and we've been looking at this on the life course, on the cross, Jesus is the bridge back to relationship with God. Everything that we were created for, all that we were originally designed to do and to have is met in relationship with him. And because of his death on the cross, he does away with all that stuff that separates us from him. This human tendency to screw things up, this self-related nature that means that we damage relationships with each other. We damage relationships with God. We create systems in our lives that are just painful and we experience the trauma and the pain because of other people's damage and tendency to screw things up. Jesus deals for it once and for all on the cross and he opens the way again to God as our father so that we can experience relationship with him and then the rest of this the the story of the bible is essentially of that being worked out so Jesus opens the way it's like the job is done but it's a now and a not yet. We experience the measure of it now, and it feels like we have this relationship with God, and we see break. This is why some people are healed and some people aren't healed. This is why sometimes we experience miraculous healing in the moment, and sometimes it feels like it doesn't happen, or it takes time, or we're never going to experience it this side of heaven. But the idea is that the kingdom is here, heaven is here now, but it's not yet. And so this letter in Revelation is the end of the story. It's the thing that we are looking forward to. John, talking to a persecuted church, to people in pain, is saying, do not fear, have hope. Because Jesus is saying, soon it will be done. What does that exactly look like? Well, we'll come to that in a second. Let's just do this second bit. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus saying this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, Alpha doesn't just mean beginning in point of time. Alpha means source. Jesus is saying, I am the source. We heard a few stories there sharing from the weekend about identity. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you can find your identity in me. And guess what? It satisfies. And you don't have to strive. And you don't have to make it happen in your own strength. That I love you unconditionally. And when you find your identity in me, you experience the way you were always created to be. I am your source. I can give you everything you need. But also, Omega there talks about end. And it's not just end point in time. It's ultimate purpose, that word means. So in Jesus, we find our identity. We find the source of who we are. But also, we find our ultimate purpose which is why we talk about on the course. The purpose of life, as far as Christianity is concerned, is found in and through relationship with Jesus. Uh, Paul puts it really nicely in Romans 11. He says, uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything. Everything comes from God. Everything exists through Jesus. And everything points to Jesus. 
So we come from God, so we find our identity in him. We live through him. If we want to experience, Jesus says, uh, if you want to experience fullness of life, come to me. If we experience life through the person of Jesus, in relationship with him, we experience fullness of life, so we exist through him. But also he gives us ultimate purpose. We live towards him. Our purpose is him. That is the Christian claim. And so what does it say next? It says the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega. And then it says this, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So what is the water of life? And how does that satisfy us? How does that give us the identity that we crave as people made in the image of God? How does it mean that if we live through him, we can have fullness of life? How does that give us purpose in our life beyond our relationships, beyond what we do in our day-to-day, beyond the things that we accumulate and parade around the edges of our life? How does God give us that? And the answer is here. It's in the fullness of his Holy Spirit. The water of life, water again and again throughout the Bible represents the Spirit of God. And that's what you've been talking about on the weekend. We've been talking about who is the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's an argument from experience. So in the Old Testament, they experienced God. God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And they were like, it was so different from every other world, ancient Near Eastern religion of the time. Because the ancient Near Eastern religions had all these different gods. And there were angry ones. There were kind ones. uh, There were really sexy ones. There were ones with pitchforks. It was strange. Nobody really knew what to think of them. And then the God of Israel revealed himself said I am one and I am the true God and you can follow me he started to reveal his character to them he started to reveal his nature to them so they believed in one God and then the nation of Israel when Jesus burst on the scene suddenly realized here is that same God that we've been experiencing over thousands of years presented to us in the person of Jesus and so therefore it's the same God but it's two persons It's the person of Jesus right now. And then when Jesus died and he rose again and he sent the Holy Spirit to fill the disciples, which is what you've all been thinking about this weekend from the passages in Acts, the disciples, the only conclusion that they could come to is this is the same spirit of the person who was walking, talking, we were living with for three years on earth, now living inside of us. So therefore, God is three in one, one and the same person, and we can experience the fullness of God in us. And here in the passage, uh, if you look a bit further back, it says this about the water of life. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. It said, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And that word dwell just means home. What is the water of life? The water of life, when we taste it, is God making his home inside of us. One of the best things about my job here is over the years, when people walk in through the doors at the back and haven't been to church before or haven't been to a church like this before where we leave space for the presence of the Holy Spirit, they experience something that they don't know how to articulate. And often what they say, they often use exactly the same phrase. They often say, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why I feel this warm, fuzzy feeling, but it feels like I've come home. And that isn't this building. They might never have been, probably haven't been to this building. It's not us. They don't know us. They've not been to us. What it is, is it's the Holy Spirit. It's the water of life filling them. And they realize this is how they were always created to live. Full to the fullness of the presence of God. What does that look like more practically? Well, it looks like this, verse 4. 
It says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things have passed away. He makes everything new. See, the danger when we suppress that thirst for the spiritual, when we suppress the part of our created identity that can only be satisfied by an experience with the true living God is that we're constantly in this cycle of pain and of grief and of tears and of mourning. And it's not to say that when you become a Christian, all that stuff suddenly goes away, right? We live in the now and not yet. This is talking to a time when the fullness of Jesus comes in entirety. And so therefore, all of this will be wiped away. But the point is, in and through the pain, in and through the experiences of grief, in and through the tears that we cry because of the brokenness around us and the things that we experience and the trauma that we live through, we can find our satisfaction spiritually through the presence of God the Holy Spirit, who fills us and satisfies our thirst. So, if that's what we're thirsty for, it's the presence of God, how do we get it? Well, here's a key thing in this little verse that says here. It says, to the thirsty, I will give water, I'll give my presence, I'll give the thing that your soul, that your spirit, utterly desires that you were created to experience without cost. Without cost. Christianity is unique in that it's the only religion that does not require standards to be met in order to be able to be close to God. Every other world religion, here's certain things that you have to do in order to be able to climb the ladder of religion so that we can experience transcendence or so that we can be holy enough to be close to God, so that we can draw near to God. Christianity is unique in saying what you need, what you really need, the presence of God in your life, being filled, having that spiritual thirst satisfied once and for all by the presence of God is given to you as a gift. And this doesn't mean that it doesn't cost, okay? It costs Jesus everything. It costs Jesus his life on the cross. He died and he experienced everything that we have done in order to be able to separate ourselves from him. It costs an almighty amount. He experienced a separation from his father that he did not need to experience. But the point is because of his death on the cross, he is now able to offer us the water of life, the spirit of God without cost because it's about grace. This is the ABC of Christianity and you never graduate. It's the C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, Z is grace. It begins with grace. It continues with grace. It ends with grace. As soon as we start to think we're working for this, we're working for the presence of God, we're working to try and satisfy our spiritual thirst, we have slipped out of Christianity. We are in a different religion. We're in a different thing altogether. We're in the world. The whole point of Christianity is it's given to us as a gift because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So how do we get it? Um, John 7, please, Tom, on the screen. This is Jesus before he dies, before he's resurrected, before the disciples experience his presence in them, working in and through them. He says this, it's almost like a taste of what's about to come says, verse 37 of chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, that was 
a Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. This was a festival that celebrated uh, Israel's time in the wilderness, okay, in the desert. What happens in the desert? Not a lot. You don't get any thirst satisfied, okay? You're lacking in food. You're lacking in water. You are thirsty. Jesus is saying this. Significantly, on the feast on which they celebrate the time, or they remember, to be honest, because no one wants to celebrate that. They remember the time when they were in the desert and they had nothing. Jesus stood up and in a loud voice, he said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as scripture has said rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Let anyone who is thirsty come to Jesus. And as we believe in him, and that word belief isn't just a mental assent to a certain set of facts. So it's not just saying, well, Jesus clearly is who he said he was, and I believe beyond reasonable doubt in the resurrection, and I, I agree, like, I must have to then agree with what Jesus says about his death on the cross. Just not, it's not just in our heads, it's also in our hearts. It's a change of belief in our heads and in our hearts that Jesus is who he says he was. That what happened on the cross is the greatest event in human history that we can be reconnected with our Father in heaven who we're created to be in relationship with and we can be filled with his love and with his presence and we experience it in our souls and it feels like suddenly we're awake. Suddenly we experience water for the first time. And as we drink of the water, what we really realize is that this whole time our bodies, our souls have been shut down and we've been dehydrated this whole time and we've not even known it. We get a taste of it and we thirst for more and more and more and more. And what's the, the beauty of the Christian life is that we can go on experiencing the Spirit of God. We can go on experiencing his, the satisfaction of his presence in our lives because Jesus says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit his presence to those who ask? It's a gift. We just need to ask for it. We don't perform to get it. He doesn't say how much more will God give the Spirit to those who perform these regulations, to those who are able to be this kind of way, to those who come to church every week, to those who read their Bible every day, to those who pray, to those who help the granny cross the road with her shopping, to those who look out for their neighbor. It doesn't say any of that. It's all good stuff. But he says, how much more would the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Stop trying to earn it. It's a gift of grace given to us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, we're going to have another opportunity to open ourselves to the Spirit in a second. We're just going to do exactly what you guys have been doing on the weekend. We're going to wait for a bit, and then we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And again, this is a process, isn't it? It's a process of opening ourselves. And what I've noticed over the years is it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, it takes us time to open ourselves in this way. We're not used to doing this sort of thing. Life is so busy and so noisy that we find it hard to eliminate distraction or at least put distraction at the foot of the cross in front of Jesus and open ourselves again. There's things that start, we start to think are barriers between us experiencing the Holy Spirit. Things like shame and guilt and all of these things and this, uh, this 
feeling of anxiousness that comes up. And the point is that Jesus has dealt with that on the cross. And if we're able to give it to him in this moment, if we're able to put the shame and the guilt and the tears and the mourning and the grief, doesn't mean it's not important, doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't recognize that it has this debilitating effect on our life. But as we give it over to him, what, that happen, what happens is we start to leave space for him to fill us with his spirit. And as he fills us with his spirit, often it's like we experience this emotion of him starting to heal some of those things from our past that are causing us to live these lives that feel like they're shut down, feel dehydrated, feel like we're not satisfied all the time. So that's what we're going to do now. Brandon, are you still here? Hello, mate. Um, you got another song? What were you going to do after that song? What else are you going to do? You got any more? Perfect. Um, can we stand up and clear the chairs? Uh, let's just get rid of all the chairs. And we're going to sing this song together, and then we're going to spend some time waiting on the Spirit.